I'm going to start off by reading a scripture to you. We're going to circle back to this Bible verse later in the message, but I want it just rattling around in your head a little bit as we work through this last installment of our At The Movie series. So the verse is, is from the book of Psalms. It's Psalm chapter 73 and verse 28. Again, I just want you to listen. We'll come back to this later. The scripture says, But as for me, how good it is to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things that you do. Hey, let me ask you this morning, and I want you to get involved. Raise your hand, clap, cheer, whistle, something. When I list your favorite genre of movie, I want you to let me know that I've hit on your favorite, okay? So for instance, let's start with comedy. How many of you guys, comedy is your favorite? Not do you like comedy, everybody likes comedy. Is comedy your favorite? You'll choose comedy over anything else. All right, a couple of you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. How about action? Yeah. Can't wait to go see Dunkirk, right? Like, we're looking forward to that. All right, what about romance? Okay. Some ladies and one guy. La La Land was your favorite? Why aren't they doing La La Land at the movies? I can't believe it. You're the romance fans. All right. What about horror? Anybody just, you're not ashamed to admit it? I want you to know that your worship pastor, Amber, her favorite genre of movie is horror. And I'm talking the creepier, the better in her mind. So now you can look at her differently, okay? Because that really is her favorite. We're in the uh, final installment of this series that we're calling At The Movies, and although this might seem a little strange on a Sunday morning, what we're doing is we're taking movies that have come out in the last year or two, and we're looking at the spiritual questions that these movies raise, and then we're also looking at the answers that these movies provide, and what we're finding is that although most movies in our world raise the right questions, they fail to provide adequate answers. This morning, we're not going to talk about a comedy, an action, a romance, or a horror movie, so if I haven't called your favorite yet, maybe this will be it. The movie that we're going to cover this morning is typically referred to as an inspirational movie. Any inspirational movie fans? No, okay. (laughs) And you know why that is? I know why that is, because inspirational is usually code for cheesy acting and low production values. Am I right? Like, I love a good, like, the idea behind a Christian movie is wonderful, but usually they're so poorly executed that you can't even watch it. You're just like, this is awful. I'm shutting it off. Jesus, don't hold this against me, all right? It's an inspirational movie. It's also often labeled a Christian movie. Now, I find that a little bit funny because, you know, people can be Christians, but I'm not totally sure that movies or music or literature or other sorts of art can be Christian. I mean, a Christian is someone who follows Jesus. A movie is not a someone, and a movie can't really follow in the ways and footsteps of Jesus. And so I'm not totally sure it makes a lot of sense to label movies and music and other sorts of art, whatever it might be. I'm not sure it makes a lot of sense to label it as quote-unquote Christian. I just don't think that that fits with what that word actually means. And what you're going to find is that there is good art on either side of what we might call a sacred and secular divide. That there are things that are not quote unquote Christian. You go to iTunes and you go to the Christian music section of their database and then you go to the rock and roll section or the hip hop or whatever it is. And what you're going to find is that there is good art that is capable of leading you closer to God on either side of the sacred and secular divide. Now, let me say something that some of you might want to email me about later. 
I act like I get all these emails. I really don't. You guys are wonderful, but I always say that as if you're going to. It's preemptive. Anyway, there is art that's on this side of the quote-unquote sacred divide that will not lead you any closer to Jesus. There's bad art on the Christian side of things. And while we celebrate the intent, sometimes we're not able to celebrate the execution. And so this morning, as we dive into an inspirational movie, as we dive into a Christian movie, I'm just going to tell you up front, some of the acting is a little bit cheesy. Just know that. Swallow it going in, you know. The production values are very high, which is nice. I'm grateful for that. So this is like an inspirational movie that some people love, some people hate. Uh, It's also controversial. Part of the reason it's controversial is because some people say this movie is too spiritual. It, It just overly spiritualizes everything. And then other people say, no, it's not biblical enough. They don't, they don't get it right. They get it wrong. In fact, there are uh, writers, authors, theologians, whatever, that say that this particular movie teaches outright heresy. That is something that would be so contrary to what we read in the Bible that it would be dangerous to consume. Now, what I think, and I'm going to let you decide for yourself, is that this movie is somewhere in between. It's in the spectrum. It's not the most dangerous piece of art that's ever been created. Let's not kid ourselves. And yet, it also has some significant artistic and theological issues that we're going to dive into this morning. All right, does anybody know what movie I'm talking about already? We're talking about The Shack. Some of you guys know, some of you have never heard of it because you don't watch Christian movies and that's okay. That is not a problem at all. So The Shack is a movie that came out just earlier this year. It's based on a best-selling novel by a man named William Paul Young. And again, it does have its fair share of artistic and theological issues that we'll talk about. But the one thing that I can say this movie has going for it is it asks one of the most important and universal questions that can be asked. It asks a question that you have asked yourself hundreds of times during your life. It's such an important question that I think viewing the movie and engaging with it well outweighs any of the difficulties that we might find with it uh, on an artistic or a theological issue. Now, I'm not going to set the movie up too much because we're going to watch the first six minutes of the movie together this morning. It's clip number one. We have four clips in total. We're going to watch the first six minutes of it, and it'll set the scene. It'll introduce you to the characters, and it'll get us going. So let's go ahead and roll the first clip, and we'll be back in a moment to talk about it. Great sadness that the narrator speaks of there. We're going to skip ahead in the timeline, and I'm just going to fill you in on it. What ends up happening is that soon after this scene in the movie, Mac takes his family to Oregon to go camping. And while they're there, his youngest daughter, Missy, the cute little girl with brown hair, is abducted and killed by a man in a shack in the woods. And so this great sadness is truly a great sadness. I mean, it's an unspeakable, unthinkable tragedy that Mac and his family have to go through. And as you can imagine, it really does tear the family apart. The older kids begin to act out. Mac and Nan, the the husband and wife, they begin to, to grow apart. And Mac in particular takes it hard because he feels responsible for protecting his little girl and he wasn't able to do it. Mac begins to think through all the different things that have happened in his life. He thinks about his abusive father. He thinks about his passive mother. He thinks about the man that would harm his little baby girl. And he looks at God and he asks God the question that you and I have asked so many times. 
He gives voice to the fear, to the question, to the pain and heartache that we all carry around every single day. He asks the question, where is God when bad things happen? I mean, seriously, if God is all good and God is all powerful like these Christians claim, then why doesn't he intervene to prevent all of the suffering in the world? Why doesn't God step in and stop death? Why would he make any of us go through the loss of a loved one, much less a young child? Why doesn't God step in and prevent loneliness? Why doesn't he intervene and stop war and evil on every scale and in every corner of the world? Why doesn't God stop? the pain and the suffering. That's the question the shack surfaces, and it's one that we've all asked. This is more than just a philosophical question for us, isn't it? It's not like, you know, you're just sitting around in a class in university one day, and you start talking about, why would God allow so much evil in the world? No, this matters because you've experienced it. You've dealt with it. The truth is, every single one of us have our shacks. We have those times and places in our life where we go through deep, sometimes horrific tragedy and loss. And we look at God and we say, God, how could this happen? How could you allow this in my life? I wonder what your shack is. I won't share mine. I'm not going to ask you to share yours. Don't turn to your neighbor and say, oh, this is the deepest pain I've borne in my life. Don't do that. But I wonder if you could be honest with yourself about what that deep hurt is, what that wound that you carry around is day in and day out. I mean, maybe it was like the death of somebody that was very close to you. Maybe the deepest wound you carry around is because of a a failed marriage or because of a negative diagnosis that the doctors gave you. Maybe you were betrayed by somebody that you thought was your friend. And, And you look at God And you say, God, this is my shack. I I just cannot understand. If you're my good, good father, if you love me, if you love all of creation the way that you say you do, how is it that you could not show up when I needed you the most? How is it, God, that you could let that happen? Now, if we were going to be honest, I mean me and you, if we were going to be honest, we've all had those moments. Even those of you guys who don't believe there's a God, you're like, God, if you're up there, we need to chat because this is not cool. We've all had this question boil to the surface. And if we could, we would love to stand in front of God and say, God, why? I need some answers. Now, in the movie, Mac is going to get that opportunity. You see, one day, he gets a letter in his mailbox at his house. And this letter is a very simple thing. It has no return address. It's just a couple of lines typed out. And it says, Mac, I want you to meet me at the shack. And it was signed, Papa. Yeah, we're talking the shack where his daughter was killed two years before. And yeah, it's signed Papa, his wife's name for God. So Mac does what any rational person would do. He assumed that this was a prank or a taunt from the man who took his daughter's life. And so he gets a gun and he goes to the shack. They're Americans. That's what he does. That's what he does. So he goes to the shack expecting to confront his, wife, uh, his daughter's killer. He goes to the shack expecting to get justice. 
And when he gets there, he finds something else altogether different. Let's roll the second clip. At the shack, Mac meets God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit face to face. Now, this is where many Christians get uncomfortable with the movie, and understandably so, because God the Father is portrayed by Octavia Spencer, a black woman. That's a little hard for Christians to swallow. And I can understand that. Now, by the way, if you haven't seen the movie, later on, um, it's revealed that the reason God chose to use that form was because Mac had daddy issues from his childhood. And so God felt this was the proper way for Mac to make introductions face to face. And indeed, later in the movie, God takes the form of an old man. And so it's not that they're making any specific claims about who God is or what God would be. I can understand the hesitation that so many of you feel when you see God represented this way, because we read throughout the scripture that God is a spirit. And in fact, the scripture gives us several commands not to make any images or light likenesses of God the Father. Indeed, that's one of the big ten back in the Old Testament. God was like, don't make any graven, carved, formed images of who you think I am. And so for the filmmakers to present God in human form, in a feminine form, in a specific racial form, I can understand the hesitation. And the truth is that representation of God is contrary to Scripture. God the Father. It's contrary to Scripture. But let me also be clear to say that when David, or uh, Michelangelo rather, painted the Sistine Chapel and he represented God as an old white guy with a long beard reaching out to touch Adam, that is equally contrary to Scripture. And so it really has nothing to do with the gender or the race or anything like that. It's the fact that we're representing God who is infinite in a finite human form that should give us a little bit of pause. We should wrestle with that a little bit. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. She's represented here as an Asian woman, and that's kind of what we would call an anthropomorphism. It's like giving some qualities to God so that we can kind of relate and understand and all of those different things. At least the movie gets Jesus right. I'm so glad for this. They actually cast a Middle Eastern guy to be Jesus. Normally, it's like a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, sash-wearing Scandinavian, and he looks nothing like the Jesus of the Bible. So thank goodness they were able to get at least that much right. Now, if you're new to reading the Bible, it might surprise you that they have chosen to represent God using three separate people. I mean, why is that? Why would they use three characters to represent God if we as Christians believe there's only one God? It comes down to a very important word in our faith, a word that you might have heard before. The word is trinity. The Bible describes God as a trinity or a tri-unity. There are three persons, but only one God. The, the really orthodox, formal, theological way to say it is that there are three persons who all share the same essence. And each of the members of the Trinity are co-equal. That means they all have the same amount of power. It's not like God the Father's up here, and then Jesus is over here. He's a little bit of a lesser God. He's a demigod or something. And then the Holy Spirit's over here. That's not how it works. They're all co-equal. This is incredibly important. Orthodox Christianity has always believed for thousands of years that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all co-equal. 
We also believe that they are co-eternal. That means that Jesus, although he was born, you know, around like 3 BC or something like that, he was not created by God. He has always existed in heaven with God, and at some point in our history, he took on human form for our benefit. Same with the Holy Spirit. They were not created. They did not emanate or come from God. All three are co-equal and co-eternal. The Godhead, the Trinity, The triunity of our God is in constant, perfect, loving, deferential community at all times. Now, that's why we as Christians have always taken community so seriously, because God is in community. And when we are in community, we are actually most like God. And when we are isolated, when we're separated, we become selfish and inward, and it's like we take, we don't give, and we are less like God because we're not in community with other people. That's why we make a big deal here about connect groups. You thought it was just so we can keep you busy during the week, you know, like idle hands are the devil's playground. No, it has nothing to do with that. (laughs) We want you to see what God created you for. We want you to experience what God experienced every moment of eternity. Perfect, loving, deferential community with someone else. So because Mac has stood face to face with God, he's going to take the opportunity to vent some of his hurt. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Job did it. The whole book of Job is Job venting to God and then God's response. And so Mac is going to take the opportunity to give voice to the same questions and heartache that you and I carry around every single day. Mac voices the thing that most of us seem to believe, that God punishes the people who disappoint him. We think that the reason we have shacks, the reason that we have problems and hurt and heartache and pain in our life is because somehow we've angered God and that is punishment. I want you to think back to your shack, whatever it was, it could have been something I named, it could be something else altogether. If you're not careful, you can develop the idea that that was God punishing you for something that you did. Can I tell you that that's really not always the case? Now, I disagree with the movie some. There are times that God punishes people. We see that throughout the Bible. But to say that every bad thing that happens is punishment from God would be unfair, and I think it's unhealthy as well. Now, Jesus' disciples made that same mistake. There's a a story in John chapter number nine where they're walking along and they see a blind man. He'd been blind since birth. He's laying on the side of the road begging, and the disciples walk up to him. They stop, and like within earshot of him and everybody else, they're like, hey, Jesus, who's being punished for this guy being, uh, for this guy's blindness? Who's being punished for that? Was it him? Did he do something? or was it his parents? Because they thought bad things only happened when God was angry and he was punishing people. That's not how it works. And Jesus actually corrects them there in John chapter number nine. But Matt gives voice to what a lot of us feel and that is that we are being punished when bad things happen. Hey, can I just point out a couple things that maybe will be practical and help you a little bit in this? Even if it's not punishment, like we want to know why, God, why, why did this happen? Where were you? Why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you intervene? We have all of those questions. Let me give you a couple of thoughts. Number one, and I hope you'll take this um, and, and at least think about it, even if you disagree or don't like it right away. Number one, it would be arrogant of us to stand before God and think that he owes us any explanation. If there is an all-powerful, all-knowing God out there, then he doesn't have to justify himself to me because I'm finite. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. 
And so I don't have any right to stand before him and say, hey, buddy, you owe me an explanation for why you would let this happen. He doesn't owe me anything. Let's circle back to the verse that we read earlier, Psalm chapter number 73, verse 28. The scripture calls God the sovereign Lord. That means God alone is powerful enough to be in charge. He's the only one that can decide what he wants to do and for his own reasons. Understand, there are good reasons for the things that happen. But that doesn't mean God owes you an explanation for any of those reasons. And you can go through your entire life bitter and angry because you don't have answers, or you can accept the fact that you're finite, God is infinite. He is sovereign, and you're not. One thing the clip got right is that we perceive our world from a very limited perspective. And so we have no right to assume that God owes us any explanations for the difficulty that we go through. That's not an easy thing to hear. I understand that. But you will be better off getting through life, whether you believe in God or not, if you will learn to accept and then go through whatever comes your way as opposed to fighting it every step. Now, just as importantly as that, we seem to have this idea that answers will make us feel better. That if I could just get the explanation, it would stop hurting. I I just need to know why, God. If you would tell me why, then I would be okay and I can move on. Can I tell you that's false? That answers are not what you need. That we look at our situation as if it's rational and our pain can be explained by answers, but that is not true. Our pain is emotional and it doesn't matter. Even if you get an explanation, it's not going to ease your pain. Think about your shack, whatever it was that you went through. If God were to appear to you and say, okay, I'm going to explain how this tragedy is going to link later on to this blessing, like sure, that might be helpful in some sense, but would it alleviate the pain? Would the heartache of loss or betrayal or unmet expectations, would they go away simply because God said to you, I want you to become more like my son? Or in 20 years, you're going to look back on this and you're going to say, oh, this was a good thing. I'm glad it turned out that way. No, in the moment, we're still going to be hurt. And so we're waiting on answers that God has no obligation to provide. And we're expecting those answers to give us healing that they simply can not. We don't need answers. You don't need answers to why you've gone through the pain and suffering in your life. You need something much deeper. The final clip is going to reveal to you what it is that each one of us actually need to move on, to move beyond, and to heal from the hurts that we carry around. For all that the shack gets wrong, for all of its issues, both artistically and theologically, there's a lot that the last two scenes get right. You see, you and I have this idea that a truly good God would save us from every pain. If he were truly God, he would rescue us. He would pull us out before anything bad ever happened. A truly good God would save us from every pain. But in reality, God saves us through every pain. God is with us in the midst of every heartache. You are never alone. Jesus promises you that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Rather than pulling you out so that you live this sheltered life, God promises to put you through things that will turn you into the person that he wants you to be. And on top of it, he promises that you will never go through it alone. 
Psalm chapter number 78, verse 23, the same verse we've referenced all morning. It says, I made the Lord my shelter. Think about that word shelter. A shelter doesn't take you out of a storm. A shelter gives you what you need to weather a storm. And that's what God promises you. If you expect God to rescue you from every bad thing that'll come your way, you will end up disappointed with God, with Jesus, with the church, all of it, because you misunderstand the mystery. God promises his presence more than anything else. Let me give you another thought here. God promises us, can we get it up there? That healing comes from an experience of his presence, not an explanation of his plans. Let me say it again, not because it's tweetable, although you could go ahead and tweet that if you wanted. You need to know this. You need to take this to heart. You need to go home tonight and think about this some more. You need to think about it in terms and in in the context of your shack and your pain and your brokenness and your unanswered questions. And you need to wrestle. You need to meditate on this thought that healing comes from an experience of God's presence, not an explanation of God's plans. Remember, you could get answers and you won't feel any better. What you need is to be close to God. Let me reference this verse one last time for you. Psalm 78, chapter number 23. It says, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. When you don't have answers, when you are confused and wounded, when you're not sure why God would ever let something like this happen, what you need is not to demand an explanation, but to experience God's goodness firsthand. If you'll commit yourself to at least trying that, I promise you, you will find healing. You will find restoration, wholeness. It comes from God's presence, not from understanding his plans. You've got two options in your life. And this is true whether you believe in God or you don't. You can demand answers. You can get bitter and angry until you have some sort of understanding and explanation for what goes on. Or you can respond the way the psalmist did. And you can uh, choose trust in God's goodness. And you can choose praise even in the difficult times. The last sentence here says, I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. I'm just like you, you guys. I've got some deep wounds. I've had some things happen in my life that I really would like to sit down with God and demand an explanation for. Things that were terrible, unspeakable, just like you. But I choose instead to praise God for the things that he sends my way, for the good gifts, for the ways in which I know that I'm never alone because his presence does for me what an explanation of his plans never will. 